for a two-state system, we can maximize the probability of making a transition by turning the perturbation off at a particular time. Because when we introduce a sinusoidal perturbation, we get a probability that oscillates with time. So if you turn it off at the, when the sine is at its maximum, then that's, that maximizes your probability. Or you could wait for the next maximum. Uh, I'm confused about the probability of a transition. Does the particle jump back and forth between the two states, or does it stay in that state once it switches? So as long as we have this sinusoidal perturbation, it's oscillating back and forth with this probability. If we turn it off, then it will stay in that state. <coughs> Can you explain what zero-point radiation is? So the electric and magnetic fields at every point in space when you study quantum field theory, you find that at each point in space, they act like a harmonic oscillator. And a harmonic oscillator has some zero-point energy. So even in the lowest possible state of the universe, there's electromagnetic radiation everywhere, because there's that minimum half h bar omega for every oscillator. Uh, the ground state of EM waves is non-zero, and all emissions are stimulated emissions. So when we talked about spontaneous emission, you can think of this emission arising as a result of the interaction with that zero-point energy, because there's no photon coming in, because we don't, that empty space, we don't say there's a photon there, but there's ground state energy, just like in the harmonic oscillator. There's ground state energy, but there's no, you know, there's no excitation. So the photons are the excitations above the ground state. In general, all transitions are stimulated at transition frequency, including absorption and emission. So to have these transitions occur, the perturbation or the photon has to have a frequency close to the transition frequency. So we saw that um, omega naught is the corresponding frequency for this energy difference, and omega is the perturbation frequency. So if the perturbation frequency is close to that frequency, then we increase the probability. So there's some, once we put in these time-dependent perturbations, these energy levels aren't sharp anymore. Like they were when we solved the hydrogen atom, every level had an exact energy. Now, because things can go back and forth, in particular because of the spontaneous emission, each hydrogen line will have some spread in energies. So that, that's just, this means that high excited states can decay. That means they don't live forever. So by the energy uncertainty principle, there's some uncertainty in the energy. That's one way to think about it. Or from this formula, we see that we can excite them even if we're not exactly at the transition frequency. Uh, so there's selection rules of M and L, but not N, so that means hydrogen can jump between any level of N. Yeah, as long as you satisfy L and M selection rules, that can happen. Since the harmonic oscillator has an infinite number of states, then for the perturbations that we've been dealing with, will w, w matrix be infinite? So 
when we did degenerate perturbation theory, that's when we we used W to represent the matrix elements of the perturbation Hamiltonian. So we only called it W when it was the submatrix that referred to degenerate states in the absence of the perturbation. So usually there's a finite number of states, but the whole perturbation Hamiltonian is usually infinite. <coughs> that matrix is infinite. Okay, this is this one. Several people ask what the good states are. So I'm surprised, since we just had a midterm and everyone did, almost everyone did very well on the midterm, where they needed to know what good states were. Uh, <coughs> the good states are the states that diagonalize the perturbation. <laughs> <laughs> Put the computer to sleep. The explanation is that we don't understand the physical significance of diagonalizing the perturbation matrix. So, what we want to find is something that's an eigenstate of the full Hamiltonian. Do we understand that part? So, if we have our full Hamiltonian is some H naught plus perturbation. So we've already found the states that diagonalize this Hamiltonian. Now we're looking at some states that are degenerate. They have the same eigenvalues. So we call them psi 1 and psi 2. <coughs> they have the same energies than any linear combination of those states. Will also be an eigen state of the Hamilton, that Hamiltonian. Because they're degenerate. They have the same eigenvalues. I can take any linear combination. That linear combination will have the same eigenvalue. Because H acting, H not acting on this or this has the same eigenvalue. So that means we have an arbitrary choice of how we choose our basis states. We can choose any linear combination of states with the same energies. Those will still be eigenstates. So now when we add this perturbation, we want to find the energy eigenstates of the full Hamiltonian. In particular, we want to diag we want that means we want to diagonalize this full matrix. We've already diagonalized this matrix. That's what this was. Now, in the subspace of states that are degenerate, we can look at the, eigens the energy eigenstates of this. They will have to be some linear combination of those states. And there's one choice that corresponds to the states that diagonalize this perturbation matrix. That means if we choose the right linear combination here, this is automatically diagonal too. And that means we've diagonalized the whole Hamiltonian. So we're just doing what we always have been doing since 115a, looking for energy eigenstates. We're just doing it in a particular order. We're saying first we diagonalize this part, and once we've diagonalized that, we look at the degenerate states with the same energies, and then diagonalize in that submatrix. So when this is a small correction, that's a sensible thing to do. You could just take the whole Hamiltonian and try to find the energy eigenstates of the whole thing. 
but that is hard. states are the states that are energy eigenstates of the full Hamiltonian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, just the whole good label really bothers me. There's no explanation of it in Griffiths as to what a good state is and a physical representation is Well, if those are the states that are energy eigenstates of the full Hamiltonian, so that's why they're good. That, yeah, that makes more sense than just calling them good. But they're, they're approximate states because we've only worked to first order in the perturbation. But to that order, they're the energy eigenstates. <coughs> and we find them by diagonalizing this matrix in the subspace of degenerate eigenstates. What is the electric dipole operator? So if I have a plus charge and a minus charge, uh, call this one R1, its position, and this one R2, then the dipole operator classically would be plus times R2 minus R1. I multiply the position by the charge. And quantum mechanically, I want to find the matrix elements of this between some states. And usually we put the proton at the origin of coordinates. So this is zero. And usually we only care about the square of this thing, so whether it's plus or minus here doesn't matter. But it's the separation between the charges multiplied by the magnitude of the charge. So put a cube in here for the charge. So for practical purposes, the dipole operator is proportional to the expectation value of the position of the electron. And we can take this in a particular state or between two states so that there's a transition. How would the example in the book for spontaneous emission change if the harmonic oscillator were 2D or 3D? So they did 1D. So in the 1D case, the only the dipole operator amounted to looking at x, the position of the charge that was in the harmonic oscillator. If it was 2D, then we'd also have to worry about y. And in the final answer, we need the squares the dipole operator. So there's a Q squared out front. So there would be an extra term to add for the Y expectation value. In 3D, there would be Z. But the harmonic oscillator, X and Y are independent because you have independent raising and lowering operators. So this just would make it twice as big or three times as big. And the zero-point energy shifts up. 
is there any spontaneous emission at the ground state? Well, so to have an emission, you'd have to release a photon that carries some energy. But if you're in the ground state, there's no lower energy state to go to, so you can't spontaneously emit. If you could, then it wouldn't be the ground state. There'd be some other state that's the real ground state. So there's a, there's a bunch of very interesting papers about uh, whether the vacuum of space that we live in is the true ground state. If it's not, there could be some lower state, and we're just in a metastable state. And then if that lower state was ever produced somehow, if we tunneled to that state, by some spontaneous emission, then uh, that bubble of real vacuum would expand from that point and fill in the entire space and kill us. But the bubble expands at the speed of light, so you wouldn't be able to see it coming. So it would just be <laughs> the end. Uh, <laughs> For an exponential perturbation, time depends on how we maximize the probability of making a transition. So, if you really mean e to the minus at, or e to the plus at, you could take a Fourier transform of this, decompose it into uh, take the Fourier transform, decompose it into frequencies, and then use the transition probability. So it would be a complicated question, but there's probably some, you can, you'd multiply the, our probability by the squares of Fourier transform coefficients. So there'd be an extra factor. saw that we can stimulate a transition from a lower state to a higher state, and we worked out the probability for that to happen. Probability to send in a photon and knock it from the high state to the low state is exactly the same. And there are also spontaneous emissions. So we, did, we made some approximations. We neglected some small terms. But we also assumed that there was just a single frequency of light coming in. And uh, we calculated the probability for that, and we assumed it was polarized. So we had a polarized laser beam shining on our atom. What we want to do now is figure out what happens when we have normal light, like from a light bulb or the sun, shining on our atom. So that means we need non-monochromatic, unpolarized, incoherent radiation, which is like thermal radiation. So, we need to generalize our calculation. So first, we'll write it in terms of the energy density. So the energy density in an electromagnetic wave, in a plane wave, <coughs> is the magnitude of the electric field in the plane wave times the infamous epsilon naught, and there's a factor of a half. So we can rewrite our transition probability in terms of u. So solve for e naught in terms of u and plug in. 
now suppose we have a bunch of different frequencies all acting at once. So if they were if they were somehow coherent, then we'd have to redo the problem and add the amplitudes for each frequency. But if we're assuming that they're incoherent, like light from the sun, then we can just add the probability for each frequency. So instead of having some energy density in a plane wave, we'll have some distributions of energy density as a function of frequency. So if we knew what rho of omega was, then we could do this integral. But uh, since we're lazy, we'll just cheat. So if rho of omega is some very smoothly varying broad function, we know that this is peaked. We saw that this was a peaked function. It's peaked around omega equals omega naught. So the biggest, if this is a smoothly broad, smoothly varying broad function, most of the integral will come when omega is close to omega naught. So then we'll just uh, approximate the integral by taking rho to omega naught and then pretending that it's constant. Now we can do the integral. So if we let x be omega naught minus omega t over 2, then this bottom integration will go, our integral will go from omega naught t over 2 to minus infinity. If we wait for large times, least large on the time scale of 1 over omega naught. So this is some, if we're interested in some optical transition, 1 over omega naught is a very short time. So if we, the light is shining on it for seconds, then this is approximately infinity. So when we do that substitution, dx is minus the omega t over 2. So from changing the dx, we get a, a 2 over t. And from placing this in terms of x, we'll get a 1 over 
2 t squared. Sine squared x over x squared dx, which is just t over 2 times pi. So by integrating over all the frequencies incoherently, we've replaced each one by itself would give us an os oscillatory function. But by summing over the probabilities for each frequency, integrating over them, we get something, something that just grows linearly with time. So that means we can talk about a rate or it's more fun. It's easier to talk about the rate instead of the probability then. So there's a rate for the transition from B to A, which is time independent. So it's the energy density at the resonant frequency times the dipole moment, dipole operator squared times this factor. And now, this part of the formula was for polarized light, so we've still assumed it's polarized. But if it's unpolarized, we need to average over all the polarization directions. element of the electron position times the charge. So say that our photon is propagating in the x direction, polarized in the z direction. Then relative to that chord yeah. Is it 2t squared or? This is 2 over t. Okay. So our dipole moment makes some angle relative to the z axis polarization axis. So so that choice of coordinates p dot n hat is magnitude 
of the dipole times cos theta. squared from the square of this dot product. The Jacobian for angular coordinates is sine theta d theta d phi. So there's no phi dependence, so we get a factor of 2 pi. <coughs> and sine theta d theta is d cos theta, so we'll get a cos theta cos theta squared d cos theta, so the integral is cos cubed theta over 3. So we get the dipole moment squared over 3. over polarizations, we get this extra third. So this is the dipole moment matrix element. This is the energy density per unit frequency. An omega naught is the frequency corresponding to the energy difference for the two states that we're looking at. our transition probability for polarized laser beam integrated over frequencies and averaged over polarizations. And we assumed that each frequency was independent so we could add probabilities, not amplitudes. So this tells us this should tell us the rate of a transition if we have just thermal radiation shining on Earth. We're going to use this to figure out also, or Einstein figured out how, if you knew this, he figured out how you could calculate the spontaneous emission rate. So this tells us the rate of this transition for thermal radiation. And from that, we can get the rate of this transition. that we have Na atoms that are in state A and then B in state B and say there's some spontaneous emission rate
Einstein called it A. So we'll call it A. There's some stimulated emission rate. It goes from B to A. And he called it B times rho omega naught. So he factored out the energy density at the resonant frequency. There's some absorption rate. We call it BAD. So now we can work out rate of change of the number of atoms in the excited state. So if we start with NB atoms in the upper state with energy EB, then the rate that they'll spontaneously radiate and go down to the lower state is just the number of those atoms times that spontaneous emission rate. There'll also be stimulated emissions. Which is still proportional to the number that we started with. Times this rate. There's also absorption from the lower state going to the upper state. That's proportional to the number in the lower state times that absorption rate. Now, if we're in thermal equilibrium, since we're assuming we have thermal radiation coming in, eventually it'll be in equilibrium, and then this will be zero. So if it's zero, then we can solve for rho of omega naught. So take this to the other side and we'll divide by the factors of rho omega naught. For in thermal equilibrium, this ratio of Na over Nb should be given by some Boltzmann factor. Which we can write in terms of our 
transition frequency. Now this looks sort of familiar. Quantum mechanics started with the Planck distribution. So if this calculation is going to agree with Planck, which we know is true, then we have to have First, that BAB equals BBA. So we also know that's true because that's what we found just by putting in sinusoidal perturbation. The transition probabilities were equal going either way. So that's not surprising. But we also have to have that A is proportional to B. formula, A has to be omega naught cubed h bar over pi squared c cubed times b. So we already calculated what this transition rate was for emission, stimulated emission and absorption. And now comparing with the Planck formula tells us what the spontaneous emission rate is. And that's very clever because that means we don't have to understand quantum field theory and zero point oscillations of electromagnetic, quantized electromagnetic fields. And uh, when Einstein did this, no one, people hadn't dreamed of uh, quantum field theory yet, so it's very cool that you can work it out without knowing quantum field theory. same thing that we called B, what Einstein called B, this rate. So given this rate and uh, this thing I just removed, this proportionality, then we know the spontaneous emission rate has to be this. excited state, we can calculate its lifetime. So now we just have an atom and there's no light shining on it. It's in a box. So we just have that first term, the spontaneous emission rate. So we can solve that 
equation. So as a function of time, the number of atoms in the excited state are just the number of times t equals zero times a decaying exponential. So we call the lifetime of that one over this coefficient. That's what people mean when they say lifetime of the state, right? You guys have seen exponential decay before somewhere. No? Yeah. And that can be really fancy and say that we have a state that can decay to three different states. And the lifetime of that state is 1 over the sum of the rates. That's just because if we could decay to three different states, there'd be three different terms, and we'd have e to the minus a1t, e to the minus a2t, e to the minus a3t. So the emission rates, spontaneous emission rates, would add. That means we can work out the quantum jumps, but we only have three minutes. So we're not going to finish. Calculate the lifetimes of the hydrogen n equals two states. So what we need to do is calculate that dipole operator for transitions between n equals two and n equals one. between our initial state and our final state. So we need x, y, and z. And we know these wave functions by heart now. The ground state just has e to the minus r over a. So we did something like this before once. You guys remember doing the Stark effect? Put the atom in a static, 
static electric field. And we had to calculate these matrix elements. We calculated this one. And we used this trick that uh, lots of times those matrix elements were zero. We could see that they were zero because we were integrating an odd function. So we looked at z goes to minus z. So when we take z goes to minus z for these wave functions, they're even. And the same for x and y. Because r is just the square root of the sum of the squares. So flipping the sign of the coordinates doesn't do anything to r. So these wave functions for the l equals 0 states are even under flipping the sign of the coordinate. So that means there's no transitions between this state and that state. Because x, y, and z are odd under flipping the sign of the coordinates. Each of the wave functions is even, so we're integrating an odd function. So this guy never decays by emitting a single photon. So actually what happens is that uh, this guy emits two photons. At the same, but it has to emit them at the same time. And we're not going to do that calculation because I've never seen anyone do it. It's too hard. It's in some old book that I can't find. Well, someone knows how to do it, but we're not going to find out how to do it. So we're going to do the easy ones. So that leaves, there's still 211 and 210 and 21 minus 1. So we'll do those guys next time.